Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, and today I'm thrilled to be interviewing Ileana Limon Romero. She is the LA Times sports editor. She is also an assistant managing editor there. She also serves as co-chair for the Sports Task Force of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists and chair of the Association for Women in Sports Media. Ileana, welcome to Burn It All Down. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm a longtime listener, and this is such a huge honor. I think I'd been following you a while in Orlando when you landed this job, which this is a big deal. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to this place? I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do know, but it is it is a big deal, and it is a little startling. Um uh, I'm very grateful for opportunities and grateful for this chance and and the faith and trust in to be. I've been one of the first many times over since I moved into uh, leadership within sports journalism. And so this is just another one of those firsts, but it's a pretty big one and a meaningful one and one that I can see not only has an impact for me and the community that we cover, but also for a ton of journalists and athletes who have come to me through the years and said it, it really mattered to them that I was in that position, people who aspire to work in journalism, that it really mattered to them that they could see themselves and see a path. And that's, whoa, <laughs> a lot to carry and a lot to feel like, you know, you want to do a great job and, and open those doors. So in terms of my journey, I will go through this as quickly as possible. <laughs> I'm from El Paso, Texas. I went to the University of New Mexico. I started off in news and had a chance to work as a reporter at a bunch of uh different publications through internships before really getting settled at the Albuquerque Tribune, a delightful afternoon paper that tried amazing things and and just really nurtured great journalists and great writers. Just a beautiful place to be. Uh, And then a couple of weeks before football season, they had a, a beat reporter. Albuquerque loves women's basketball, by the way. So this beat job was Uh, You cover University of New Mexico football and women's basketball. Mm. That was your full-time job. The women's basketball team was averaging 15,000 fans a game. Wow. They were in the top 10 nationally in terms of attendance. So this was like two really big deal beats. And the person quit right before the football season. And I had covered a lot of crime and public safety stuff that was super heavy, super difficult for years. I'd gone into meth labs. I'd interviewed grieving families. I'd done so many different things that were a huge challenge. And so... It felt like a good moment for a change, but there were a lot of people who were like, oh, you're going to do this. That means you can really probably not go back to news if you do this for very long. You're just like done. Like you're just off in that world and you don't get to come back into leadership roles. You're just making this huge life altering choice. And I was like, that's ridiculous. (laughs) And fortunately, the industry has kind of caught up to my thinking because it's been through so many seismic changes in terms of trying to capture audience that a lot of sports leaders have been elevated into leadership roles within newsrooms. Mm-hmm. And we can soon go over why that's good and bad. <laughs> but <laughs> the good part is that me- that meant my career path was really open. I got the opportunity to work as a reporter in Orlando through a series of relationships that I built with these organizations that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I got to know people. That was really important because... 
University of New Mexico isn't known for like having a ton of great connections out in the journalism industry. It was really upon me to like learn to network and that's not always comfortable for most folks. Like, yeah. and it actually isn't super comfortable for me either. It's something that like I, I gear myself up for, but it's not natural for me to put, talk about myself and put myself in that space. But I was able to uh, do that and it opened a door to reporting and then at a certain point, I was really unhappy with a succession of really not great bosses who were not wonderful to our entire team for a variety of reasons. They had their own reasons. They had their own challenges, but it just wasn't working. And I felt like I could do it better. So I decided that I was going to storm the castle and I immediately ran into a brick wall. Uh, this was not easy to do, mm. even though we had a bunch of vacancies, our sports editor, our college editor had left. The other editors were kind of spread across different publications within our company in Orlando. Uh, and so there was literally no one there for the day to day. And I went into the managing editor's office and said, I would like to do this. I can just do it on an interim basis until you have people in place. Mm. I know I've never done this at a professional level before, but I can help you. And he said, yeah, no, no. Um, we're going to let the sports editor hire their person. So we're not going to do that. I said, you have no one in that corner. Like, there's mm -hmm. literally no one. You're borrowing resources from other places. Just let me help you. And he still said no. <clears throat> it wasn't until, you know, another woman who was an assistant editor at a sister publication said, I'm not moving to Orlando for a month until you figure this out. Just let her do this. Yeah. She's active in the Association for Women in Sports Media and was smart enough to be very vocal in that room. And they're like, oh, okay, fine. So that's how I got in the door. Okay, fine. And so <laughs> I juggled. What a red carpet rolled out for you. Okay, I know, right? Fine. <laughs> okay, fine. But just for right now. So I juggled two jobs. Um, they did hire that sports editor, but there was no plan for um, this really huge football preview section that Orlando does every year. It's like six editions of the sports section that come in all at once. No plan whatsoever. It usually takes six months to do. We did it in three weeks. And it won national awards. Like, it, just by luck and effort and sheer will, we pulled it all together and it did really well. And at the end of that, it was like, okay, you're settled, you're here. It was time for this person to hire their assistant sports editor to be over colleges. And he asked one of his longtime best friends first. Hmm. And that person said, no, I don't want to work that hard. <laughs> so he's like, well, I feel like you earned it. And there was no conversation that had been offered to anyone else. I knew this because I was a reporter and because everybody in journalism talks. And so I'd already heard. And I just had to make an after choice that I've had to make over and over in my career, which is you can be fixated on that barrier or you can just say, cool, I'll take it. I'm in. Because this is where I can make change. This is where I can do something. This is where I can get to the goal. And I will do my very best to focus on my team and the things that I can control and not on the people who are the gatekeepers who are still at times a little problematic. There's a mix of, of things and decision making. And within journalism, the number one thing, the stressor that I see the most, the most consistent excuse for the lack of inclusivity is that they're afraid to take risks. They're afraid to take risks because there's such great consequences. There's chances that it alters the team chemistry. People are asked to do more with less. And if they have someone who's unsuccessful, it can be hard to get them out. And also it can be hard to replace them if you lose them. 
So every job in media in general, like you don't know if you're going to fill it again. So these are the excuses that longtime people who have been in leadership who predominantly are white males, they're looking for people that they feel like they can trust, that they are a known quantity that they feel like will be successful, will put them in position for success and won't leave them hanging. And so if they don't know journalists of color, if they don't know women, if they don't know other voices, it's easier to trust the ones they do know. And that is the number one thing that I hear the most. And it was something that right out of the gate, I had to decide that I could either just be so angry and refuse to do it because I'd been disrespected, in my opinion, or I could just just go and, and figure out how to do the best in the role, show them that I was always the best option and reach out to other people um, and, and continue to try to open that same door for them. So that got me in, and then I plateaued for a while in that assistant role. Uh, and it took a long time to get a sports editor opportunity, not because they didn't think I could, but because there were just corporate issues with instability for my supervisor, who, I, who gave me a chance and who I really liked and who had really tried to support me. There was concern that his job might be eliminated if they moved him over to something else. So they kind of kept him in limbo, and I was sort of it and mm. sort of not. There's just a lot of that in the industry. And then finally got the role, amazing opportunity. And then not too long after, you know, the Los Angeles Times reached out, which was a big surprise. And they, I, it was the middle of the pandemic. It was a really hard time, like personally for my family, not the ideal time to move across country, lots of things going on, but they said, just, just listen, just give it a chance. And I did, and it worked out, and I was hired as a deputy sports editor to run day-to-day operations, and then once my boss moved into a new role, they offered me this opportunity, and I'm the first woman at the Los Angeles Times to be the sports editor. They've never had a woman before, which is a little disappointing, but that's okay. (laughs) I'm thrilled to have the honor. I am the only Latina sports editor at a major U.S. newspaper in the United States, which is very disappointing and something that I'm working on fixing through the organizations that I work with. And I'm the first Mexican-American sports editor at the Los Angeles Times, which is in a community that's 40% Latino and predominantly Mexican-American. That's like a big deal here too as well. So I think that the journey had many more twists and turns even than what I described. I've had a ton of allies help carry me through that, through those organizations and within newsrooms. I've had a lot of champions and people who have helped me so much And I've had a ton of really frustrating barriers and setbacks that you just at some point have to decide if you're willing to tolerate what it takes to move past them. But I think that's universal for a lot of women in professions in general. Yeah, so much of what you described has parallels in other fields, mine too, in academia. 100%. Particularly about informal barriers and the kind of informal obstacles to the success of people of color and women. Um, I don't know which is more shocking, the women or the Latinx. I mean, it comes together, right? I mean, it's just, it's just so incredible. Of course, it's 40% Latino in Los Angeles in California, which was Mexico. I mean, you're talking about like all these places that were 
also Mexico. Yes. Like, it's been <laughs> Latino like that forever. Yes. Some people might say, oh, the changing demographic, which drives no. me insane about the Southwest, right? It's like, right. I guess, like, there are more Salvadorans than there used to be. There are more uh, Panamanians than there used to be. But, you know, there have been Mexicans there for since Mexico existed. And first, they were there first. Yeah, of course. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> and it's, you know, incredible on top of it to then think about fandom and sports in that across the United States, globally, much less within the LA area. So what types of stories do you think get lost when we don't have gender representation, sexuality, and of course, racial diversity in these newsrooms? You know, what kinds of sports stories do we miss? For me, it's class, race, gender representation across the board. Like, and I think We've had gatekeepers against, you know, class because access to this has been hard. We've had race issues and we've had gender issues. And, and you know, as much as we've made strides, we have issues in all of those places. What we lose is we lose accurately reflecting the community that we're covering. You know, I, I do not let my friends and allies, older white male journalists or you know, white women or fellow women who are non-black journalists, non-queer journalists, all of those, like, we don't get to opt out of the conversation. It's not that we're not covering those topics. You have an obligation. It shouldn't just be like, oh, you're the Latinx journalist. You're just covering all the Latinx issues. We're just going to put it over there. Not doing that. Although you do bring a powerful voice, um, nobody gets to opt out of the conversation of accurately and fully representing the community that you're in. But inherently, based on your experiences, you decide who you interview, you decide the questions that you ask, you decide the framing of those questions. And even well-intended people who don't come from diverse backgrounds don't understand how to ask that array of questions or how to connect and relate and put person people in positions to feel comfortable to truly share their stories. And I think aside from public safety issues and aside from just really core health issues, like people don't necessarily have to come to you. And so I've emphasized to leaders that I've talked to, this is not just important for the quality of your work. This is not just like a community obligation or the right thing to do. This is detrimental to your business interests because that community will continue to grow and they will just move on without you. They will get their information and they will get their, their connection through other paths. And eventually you are going to, you're going to age out. You're going to work your way out of having a spot there, you're going to see diminishing returns. So it's it's certainly fairness, accuracy, representation of a community, a reflection of the community, but it's also, you know, just truly being indispensable to that community in a way that felt automatic and easy for media outlets in the past. That's no longer there. People have so many options. And it's not just like the print product, but even digital options, um, People are not beholden to cable networks anymore. <laughs> they stream things. They, they, the media has largely been democratized in terms of what people choose to engage with. And even if it's one that you used to have disdain for that maybe not doesn't share your journalistic values, that doesn't matter. People are choosing. And they are choosing sometimes in not the most well-informed ways if it's just like biased <laughs> resources but you have put them in this position because you have not acknowledged them and reflected their needs. 
Is it fair to say we see that parallel in other ways with Latino communities across the U.S. that, you know, even sometimes when we see political affiliations that don't seem on paper to make sense, given what the candidates are saying, there's a way of neglect that just produces a kind of, uh, to some degree, conservatism? Yeah, there's a massive way that um, conservatism in this country in some ways had preyed upon this idea of the American dream. Like, for example, let's just take something basic like taxes. And so for a while, it used to confound people. Why would a lot of people who are extremely low-income vote Republican when the Republican Party tends to be favor, you know, retention of wealth of the classes that exist. That's that's a strategy, that it would trickle down through their business interests and their business needs. Why would so many low-income people do that? Well, they sold the dream. They sold the idea that, like, you can have this, and once you do, you shouldn't share what you have with anyone else. You should make them earn it, too. And if you spend in the business world, it will eventually trickle down to jobs and economic impact for others. That was weird to a lot of people. Like, why would that do that? So if you look at it by the same way through race or gender lenses, it's also the same idea. It's selling this other vision of what's possible Mm -hmm. and selling them on the idea that they too can be exceptional and that they don't have to share what's theirs once they get it. Uh, And I think it's challenging. And I think there is a lot of... um, negativity. There's a lot of nuance. I think looking at it as one note is is challenging. And I think there's a those same class differences that exist within other countries also exist in Latin America. And it's not necessarily people don't vote based entirely solely upon race. And they don't always identify in the ways they have certain values. The cultural touchstone still exists. So those single issue voter issues still exist. And and so yeah. Understanding that is essential to, you know, accurately covering things. The other thing is if you've never targeted anything towards those audiences or provided anything in bilingual versions, what we saw when I was still in Florida and South Florida, like the radio stations are really popular and powerful. Spanish language radio, and they say whatever. And it is as crazy as the darkest corners of the internet. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. those things are the only form of news that comes in. Mm-hmm. because media outlets have not been covering or providing as much information. And so a lot of times it's unconventional sources that come through. And like I said, it's whatever version of the narrative that's there is there. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So let's get to language. Um, For many of us in the New York area, it was inexplicable. It continues to confound why the New York Times shut down the Spanish section um, several years ago. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand it. I still don't. Uh, what does that landscape look like nationally and in, you know, and in California right now? Yeah, I think it's, again, the it's a series of executives and marketing people saying, we want the Latino market. But what it's like to actually get the Latino market means, again, a very nuanced picture. It's just as fragmented and shifting as the general English-speaking American audience. So if you came and said, I want to engage and get a lot of eyeballs and put my advertiser in front of the American market, you would be like, oh, you, you're crazy. Like how you reach all of those people, mm-hmm. that's a wide range, that's not mm-hmm. really targeted. General purpose stuff will not do as well. You have to understand that there's nuances and differences and, and you're not quite grasping it. Well, that's been the same approach to the Latino market. Oftentimes... Poorly handled, poorly done in terms of marketing and advocating and sharing. And as I mentioned, we probably will touch on this when it comes to sports media as well. But the general patterns are that when you have ignored a market for so long and when you have talked down to a market for so long, when you finally step into the space and invest in resources or do something, a lot of times the audience doesn't have the signal to turn to you or to feel like you should be part of their world, like you should opt in. They've gone to other resources. They've done other things. You're just not a part of their life. So in order to get enough audience sources the expense, in order to do it, you know, like I said, in a consistent, high-quality way, and in order to get advertisers to get behind it, understanding that the audience is smaller than what their outsized expectations are because it's growing and has to be nurtured, because it just didn't automatically exist. And the misconceptions about this massive Latino demographic, well, why hasn't the Latino vote changed everything in this country? Same reason the Latino vote hasn't gotten all behind the Spanish language outlets in this country. It's because they're poorly marketed, haven't been in existence for a long time, and there's just been many challenges along the way, and there are outsized expectations for a return on the investment because they just look at the demographics of this country, not really like, Who can read? Who can pay? Who has access? Who remembers being mocked by that outlet and doesn't want to? Who reads in that particular voice? Mm -hmm. There are a million dialects within Spanish, and some come across poorly. Um, Who who can engage and connect with that contact? Who's going to be the consistent audience? It's really knowing who you have and what you have. A lot of the projects have suffered from great expense and the lack of understanding of who they're trying to target. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you get then to fulfill the outsized expectations when you've got this historically marginalized, neglected audience that you're trying to connect with, not always even marginalized, as we said, economically or anything like that, but marginalized from the mainstream press? How does a place like the LA Times use sports to try to reach that goal? I think we have... Honest conversations internally, you have to have people who understand what caused the failure in the past, people who understand what 
the many shades and many layers of what they're doing uh, and what impact they have has. And you have to pitch it in a way that is, is smaller and has a chance to grow. Um, we have to build trust. These have to be one-to-one relationships. This has to grow uh, and and the publication has to understand that. The media outlet has to understand that. And if they're willing to do that and to invest authentically, then you can grow it steadily. But you have to adjust expectations. Sometimes that means adjust investment, but by virtue of singling one, who you hire. Two, the resources that you give them. And those don't always have to be financial resources, but they can be time resources and a belief in what they're saying, a belief in their knowledge and and in their ability to connect. We've had great success with the Latinx Files newsletter. We wanted to do something that was a full vertical, that was, you know, a whole separate section that covered Latino life in this, like, really important way. But we learned from other problems. And so we started with a newsletter. We started with something that was really accessible and something that could connect. And the goal was, let's get 20,000 subscribers in the first year. And we blew past that because we found a person who had a great voice and had a chance to connect. And it's not for everyone. It's not going to cover all aspects, but we also have reporters in our metro department who do different kind of stories. We have people who do do Spanish language stories. And we have people who do completely English language stories that serve the, the Latino community. And then we also have people who were just there, who just cover the everyday, but happen to be Latinx and their voices and representation in the everyday product are just as important. You don't want to just kind of shove it all off into the corner and do it in that way. You want to offer people a variety of points of entry. And over time, the Los Angeles Times is hoping that it grows a greater foothold in a community that I mentioned, 40% of Los Angeles, but a much smaller percentage of our overall readership because they were not all represented in the past, and it just didn't seem like something that was for them. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting to, to think about how then you interact with players and have access to different athletes. Um, have you found a, a better, a different connection with the athletes that you're covering who are Latinx? I mean, it's different in all different ways. Uh, it's, it's been different in each example for me at each level and each location where I've gone. Generally, I just encourage reporters to play to their strengths, whatever your strength is, whatever makes you comfortable for building relationships and getting to know a person, uh, and trying to gain their trust so that they can tell the most complete story possible. That's what you got to do. I personally try to be super polite. That's like, that's how I am. Like, I, I just thank you for your time. How can I talk with you? And go through those things. If the interview was better in Spanish, I could do the interview in Spanish. That's an asset. But generally, it's more, I don't really think a ton of people think in those terms. They do want to help if they see somebody who is is different. Um, I think I've come across female athletes who have said, like, it mattered a lot to me. And it didn't register in the moment, but maybe they said a little more or they felt slightly more comfortable. And that was enough to make it a better experience. There's a whole range of Latinx athletes. There's some who are new, fresh immigrants from other areas where women don't even work in sports. And they're like, what the hell? So, And there's some who are super happy and comfortable. And it does mean a lot that you can speak in English or Spanish or that you can do things that make them comfortable. 
it's it's a wide range, just as any other experience. But the journalists that I've supervised and mentored, I've just encouraged them, you know, play to your strengths. You know, you might be a veteran in the industry who brings a lot of authority and people just naturally look to that and you should never shy away from that. You should use that. If you're a puppy in the industry, brand new, like your superpower is you don't know everything and you don't offend people with your condescension and you're like telling them leading questions and other things and they open up more because you ask them to explain something more broadly in ways that people never bother to listen to. And for Latinx athletes, it's it's a whole gamut of experiences too. Some can be really nice and really happy to see you know, Latinx journalists doing well. Others don't care because they're athletes and sometimes they just don't care about anything but themselves. And and some are like startled by the number of women who are in media, who are in their clubhouses or in their space. That is, freaks them out initially. Uh, and then they get over it. So it just runs a gamut. One question that I have then is when you're looking from the perspective of a task force or you're looking at this association and you talked about how important the networking has been for you and the support and the allyship, um, when you're sitting down at the table to kind of look forward and say, what do we need to do? What is jumping out at you? I think it's really opening doors. It's continuously opening doors. We have a good history with, we have good partnerships with the National Association of Black Journalists the Asian American Journalists Association, LGBTQ plus groups, just a variety of different affinity organizations that support journalists, and even the Society for Professional Journalists. I will go so far as to say right now, it's an inhospitable climate in general to be a journalist. Uh, So I just think in general, support across the board is important for everyone who chooses to partake in this industry and feels like a calling Mm -hmm. toward telling other people's stories. There's just a general hostility and lack of filter in this country and an anti-journalism wave that makes it very difficult. So you have all of those things. Mm -hmm. You want to support, you want to empower, you want to help them feel like they have uh, a purpose and a belonging and support if they get reader negativity, if they get source negativity. There's a whole wave of online harassment that goes along with having the audacity just to speak and write. So... You want to support in those ways, but generally within our industry, we've seen that we have a danger zone about three to five years after a sports journalist is in sports media. There's a lot of internships. It's getting better. It's not perfect, but there's a good number of internships that people are looking, and they've been called out on their lack of diversity, and that's an easy fix. So you've got that. Some entry-level jobs, although there's, there's still some barriers along the way. And then, like I said, in that three to five-year range, The advancement stalls, the support stalls, the general support for their ideas, for their development, for everything. Um, There's a disconnect over what they should be doing sometimes, miscommunication, understanding what a manager needs, understanding the values of the company, understanding how, what success can and should look like. It gets very stressful. It gets very frustrating. You're often one of the only ones. It's very isolating and people leave. People leave the industry and they go on to be successes in other industries, which is great for other industries, but super problematic for like having a sustained opportunity for people to move into leadership roles and having them continue to grow and really shape naturally and organically the way our media covers its communities and covers the entire country, covers the entire world. Uh, You have the absence of those decision makers, absent of voices, 
that becomes really problematic. So we are really targeting toward retention and mentoring. When you think about journalism, how do you balance? Okay, so some weird things from an outside observation that I'm just dying to ask somebody. So help me through this. Like, for example, all of a sudden there's academics writing for newspapers like me, like not really journalistically trained, um, not even on the job trained, often asked to do it for free. There's a range. Then you've got people who are journalists, and I'm putting air quotes in here, not to try to create a hierarchy, but to say there's like a social media influencer versus journalist. Right. There's investigative versus kind of opinion pieces. I I feel like there's a lot right now going on and it without trying to gatekeep those types of categories, right? Because that can be really easy to be like, you're not a real journalist, whatever that is. So how do you like balance people's persona coming in, their quote unquote popularity, their journalistic credentials? And how do you think that figures into this anti-journalist wave? So the thing that I learned in Albuquerque that was invaluable from a really smart editor was just when you have these quandaries, when you're unsure about how to proceed with something, when you feel like, you know, how do we present this? How do we include all these different voices, which we think is a value? We want to we want to be of the community and we want to represent a range of voices. We want to label them clearly so that the readers understand what's going on. Any difficult question I usually come back to, how does this serve the reader? Or how does this serve the viewer? How does this serve our audience? And so the goal is not to confuse. The goal is not to give them limited information. So if we're putting a bunch of different voices out there, we want to make sure that we have mechanisms that signals to them very clearly who this is, what their perspective is. And if they come with various biases, then we signal in a couple of different ways to them, whether that's a tagline or an introduction, an editor's note, or whatever that must look like. For example... This is Brittany Griner's agent. So you should know that. Her perspective is specifically this world and this world only. Um, it should be labeled as, as a, a commentary, as, as an op-ed, essentially. And it can live within the sports section outside of the traditional opinion pages. But we just need to tell readers who it is and where this person's coming from. And they can form their own opinions about whatever bias may exist as a result of that. So I think transparency and clear communication. We have severe media literacy problems that are not entirely the fault of our audience. It is the fault of us for not clearly labeling what we inherently know is our business and what we do. And then as we add new layers to it, it becomes even more confusing and not understanding that it is a fragmented world where athletes are their own media outlets on their own social Mm -hmm. platforms. And then there's the influencers and there's people who are super fans who get bigger roles because they develop a following in an audience. Then there are the academics who are who have their own research perspectives that are highly valuable, but sometimes a little skewed by their research. And then you have uh, people who have opinions, some of which are based on experiences that are incredibly valuable to have. And if they're clearly stated, it's great. And then others who are not based in fact or reality that are quite problematic and have developed their own outsized voice online. And those are a whole different one. You you have to kind of not talk down to the reader, but give them the best chance. Like, this is my world. This is not their world. This is what I do every day, but it's not necessarily what they do every day. And to assume that they always knew who we are and know what we do and how we go about how we do our job is 
a failure on our part. And so again, when there's tough decisions or I'm unsure about something or I'm trying to figure out why something works or doesn't, it's really how does this serve our audience? How does this serve the reader? And just a couple little tiny sports questions. Absolutely. Growing up in El Paso, did you like sports? Yeah. Yeah, I did. What did you like? What was it like? So my dad played high school basketball. And so it's it's a big basketball place in, in the Southwest in particular there. Uh, so I played high school basketball. I went to a bunch of camps. But I also, my parents, I think they were trying to tie me out. I like to ask a lot of questions when I was younger, which is like, hello, future journalist. But they're like, ooh, she's got too much energy. We got to tie her out. So they put me like in every sport and every dance group and everything you can imagine. Like I was in all the activities until we settled on what it was going to be. I played three sports in middle school and that were the core ones, volleyball, basketball, track and field, and then finally settled on basketball in high school. I, I liked it a lot. I My parents didn't put pressure on me to do that. They were readers. Mm. Um, my mom's side of the family had a newspaper. They sold it in Mexico, but they had one. The crossing the border changes the wealth factor exponentially. So my grandfather, even though my great uncle like had this paper and that was a pretty good thing, once you cross the border, like you drop down and you're just hustling to get by. So he was accounted by trade, but d- ran a fruit stand here as as mm-hmm. his job and held a number of odd jobs, even though he had this this immense um, education and background back in Mexico. So that's not an uncommon thing, but they did value newspapers. So there were two newspapers in town. That's what I grew up reading. Uh, I read the box scores. The El Paso Diablos were the minor league baseball team. Fernando Mania mm-hmm. was a huge thing. I watched Fernando Valenzuela pitch mm-hmm. late in his career with my grandfather because he was a Dodger fan. And you could see the Dodgers in El Paso, like KTLA and, and other stuff was available there. My dad was big into the Showtime Lakers. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it just kind of went from there. So I had a, a lot of exposure from from that sort of thing. What's your favorite sport to cover now? I still find that the men's and women's NCAA tournaments are my favorite because basketball is at my heart. And I feel like it's just the biggest opportunity for amazing succession of games and upsets and fun. And so, yeah, March is my favorite time, but (laughs) I'm still learning about other sports. I will learn cricket eventually, but that's like the big one to still unlock. But Mm. like I'm learning and trying and developing and I am pretty endlessly curious about the world. And so there's not a lot that I don't find interesting. Yeah, that's good for you and for (laughs) for your readers. Ileana, thank you for being on Burn It All Down. We really, really appreciate it. Best of luck to you. We're following you closely and enthusiastically. Ah, Thank you so much. Like I said, longtime fan. And I will encourage everyone to continue listening because this has been an amazing podcast. Congratulations on all the work that you all have done and all you've achieved with it. So that's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstig. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. You can follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and read the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com.
You'll also find links to our merch at our bonfire store if you want, you know, some very belated holiday presents. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. I'm Brenda Elsie, and on behalf of all of my wonderful co-hosts, burn on and not out.